morning. It is good to see you this morning. I realized as I looked at my calendar that uh, we have not been into the book of Habakkuk since, I think, the end of July. So my temptation was just to start over because we've all forgotten what this book is about. But I will try to briefly summarize. We will look at chapter 3, and I will try to get through chapter 3. Uh, we may or may not get that far, but at least so you know what direction we're going. Habakkuk, I find so just encouraging to me personally. Habakkuk lived about 607 B.C. Uh, he lived during the reign of the good king, Josiah, uh, but then there were some evil kings that showed up, and also the people were in spiritual decline, the people of Judah. Judah, remember, was the, the uh, southern two tribes, the northern ten, tri- ten tribes of Israel, which is called Israel in places in the Old Testament, had already gone into captivity, uh, Assyria being the ones that God used to take them into captivity. And now Judah is in spiritual declension and decline, in rebellion against God, and this traces us back to Deuteronomy chapter 28, where God told Israel, if you disobey me, I will discipline you. If you obey me, I will bless you. And you can trace those uh, highways of prophecy actually clear out through the book of Revelation. God's special relationship with his chosen people, the nation Israel, and then his special relationship with the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is believers in Christ, that is us. And so Judah is in spiritual decline. Habakkuk has been sent. He identifies himself twice in this little letter, in this little book, as a prophet. He is one sent by God to give out the very words of God. And Habakkuk evidently could have been uh, one of those who led worship in the temple. We'll see that in chapter 3. But he is primarily identified as a prophet. We do not know much about him other than what is revealed for us here. But Habakkuk asks some questions which are fundamental questions of life. If you've been with us, you've recognized some of those questions as we have covered them. And a few of them are, does God really care about my circumstances? Does God care about my situation? Does God care about our nation? Does God care about the world situation where it seems that evil wins the day time and time again as we look around our world and even in our culture and in the time we live. Why are the wicked prospering in the midst of God's people? Habakkuk is distressed over some of these questions. He asks the question, is God fair? Is God just? And finally, is God there? How do we find peace when we are struggling with very fundamental questions that we struggle with? Sometimes we get frustrated with God, and that's okay because David, the king, And the the great poet shepherd and warrior king got frustrated. And we see that throughout the Psalms and some of those places. Sometimes we wonder why God doesn't do something about all the evil in the world. We sometimes wonder why are there problems in our families, in our interpersonal relationships with others, or the illnesses in our own physical frames. Doesn't God care? Doesn't he take care of these things? But with Habakkuk, I hope if you've been with us, And as we finish up today, that we will have learned that we can travel from distress to delight, from sorrow to serenity, and we can wade through the waters of worry to worship. And that's the journey that Habakkuk is on. In chapter 1, verse 1, we see this oracle of Habakkuk, the prophet. He prays to God. He is in great deep distress in chapter 1 where he says, How long, O Lord, will I call for help? And you will not hear 
I cry out to you violence that you do not save. Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look upon wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. Therefore, the law is ignored. The justice is never upheld. The wicked surround the righteous and the justice comes out perverted. There are echoes in our own time in that prayer, I think. And I think it's the human condition. It's my observation that Habakkuk is offering up a prayer of complaint, and we see those in Scripture from time to time. In chapter 1, down in uh, verse 13, where he says, this is another prayer, the second prayer, your eyes are too pure to approve evil. You can... Uh, You cannot look upon wickedness with favor. Why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? This is the result of the fact that God, in Habakkuk's distress, discloses what he's doing. And he's going to use the Chaldeans, or the Babylonians as the more common term, to discipline Judah. And Habakkuk is taken back. Whoa, you're using evil people, more evil than us, to discipline us. And again, it traces back to God's promise to Israel, to the people of God, that if you obey me, I will bless you. If you disobey me, I will discipline you. And we see these cycles in the Old Testament history of the nation Israel where God disciplines them. And the instruments of his discipline were none that we would choose. Assyria, really? where when they took the captives back from Israel, from the north, they put iron clamps and and hooks through their jaws and hooked them chain to chain and took them back. These were not nice people. And the Babylonians were not much better. And later on, they will carry Judah into captivity for those years of captivity. Does God care? Is God fair? Is God just? Is God even there One of the things that God told Habakkuk was that he would deal with these Babylonians. Habakkuk is upset because the Babylonians are full of iniquity. They're full of injustice. They're full of idolatry. And then chapter 2 is complete as Habakkuk, the prophet of God, the very mouthpiece of God, is waiting in anticipation. And then God admonishes him and what he's going to do. And if you remember, as we went through chapter 2, there are five woes. W-O-E. We find the first one in verse 6, the second one in verse 9, the third one in verse 12, the fourth one in verse 15, and the fifth one in verse 19. And beware when God says, whoa, whoa. And that was one of the responsibilities of all the prophets is they would pronounce blessing upon the people, but they would also pronounce judgment in these woes. And this was a judgment on Babylonia. And that God is not a deaf to the cries of Habakkuk. He is going to take care of the thing, but it's not going to be right away. And we see that come much later in history. After these five woes at the end of chapter 2, Habakkuk simply states in verse 20, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let the earth be silent before him. And that is the introduction to chapter 3, which is actually a psalm. I know that we often think only the Psalms are collected in the book in our Bibles called the Psalms, but this is actually a Psalm. It takes the format of a Psalm. Look at verse 1 of chapter 3 where it says, A prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to the Shigianoth. I practiced all week to say that. 
It's untranslatable into English. That's why it's left in uh, transliterated Hebrew because it's a very rare word. The only other place it occurs is in the introduction to Psalm chapter 7. And it's such a rare word that we're not sure what it means exactly. And so they leave it in transliterated Hebrew here in the English letters in a rough pronunciation of the Hebrew name or the Hebrew words. Uh, it, simply, it simply means perhaps uh, uh, something that's very passionate. It's very emotive. There's a lot of ups and downs, and we're going to see that here. But we're not sure what that word means in case you're taking notes on Hebrew words in Scripture. But this is uh, like an introduction to the Psalms. If you go back to the Psalms, you'll see these descriptions in your Bibles before the Psalm actually starts. And uh, this introduces us, and then there is uh, words and, and, and phrases and stanzas in poetic form. And then it ends at the very end of 19, for the choir director on my stringed instruments. So this is definitely in a Psalm form. And this lends us to the belief that Habakkuk was probably involved in, if not in charge of temple worship, and he was providing people with the songs to sing in temple worship, as the Psalms are Hebrew poetry and most often set to music. The music has been lost, but the poetry remains for us. Uh, did you know that also in the Old Testament there are at least 11 other instances of psalms that are not in the book of Psalms. For instance, Exodus 15, Deuteronomy 32, Judges 5, 1 Samuel 2, 2 Samuel 22, Job 3, 7, and 10, Isaiah 12, Isaiah 38, Lamentations 3 and 5, Jonah 2, and here. So uh, keep your eyes open when you read Scripture and look for those evidences that this is poetic, this is a psalm in form. But here we have definitely a psalm in form. And we see three things in chapter 3. We see that there is a request for God's mercy in verses 1 through 2. We see there's a recalling of God's might in verses 3 through 15. And then finally, we see there is a rejoicing in God's majesty in verses 16 through 19. Just a rough outline of chapter 3. It begins with a prayer, though, and Habakkuk, again, identifies himself as a prophet, and he lets us know that this is a prayer, and he says, Lord, I have heard the report about you, and I fear, or I have an awesomeness in response, essentially. He's requesting God's mercy in verses 1 through 2. Lord, I've heard the report about you, and I fear, O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known in wrath. Remember mercy, or some of your translations have compassion there. Remember your compassion. As we compare this prayer to the first prayer I read at chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, and then chapter 1, verses, uh, what, 13, 14, uh, we see that those prayers were kind of prayers of complaint, of perplexity, of wondering what God is doing. But here we see some keys to how to approach God scripturally. He says, approach humbly. He recognizes that he is fearful or in an awesome place. He knows he is talking to the Almighty God. Habakkuk, why was this change? Why was this change from the end of chapter 2 to chapter 3? I think it's because he had taken his eyes off of his current circumstances. He had taken his eyes off of Judah, off the Babylonians, off himself, and he was focusing solely upon God. 
Listen to the words of Martin Lloyd-Jones, a preacher and a commentator from another era. He puts it this way, and I quote him. How was Habakkuk brought to such a position? It would seem that when he stopped thinking about his own nation or the Chaldeans and contemplated only the holiness and justice of God against the dark background of sin in the world, it changed his whole perspective. Lloyd-Jones goes on to say, Our problems can nearly all be traced to our persistence in looking at the immediate problems themselves instead of looking at them in the light of God. So long as Habakkuk was looking at Israel and the Chaldeans, he was troubled. Now he has forgotten Israel as such and the Chaldeans and his eyes are upon God. He has returned to the realm of spiritual truth, the holiness of God, sin in man and sin in the world. And so he is able to see things in an entirely new light. He is now concerned for the glory of God and for nothing else. He had to stop thinking in terms of the fact that the Chaldeans were worse sinners than the Jews and that yet God was going to use them, perplexing though this problem was. That attitude made him forget the sin of his own nation, though through concentrating on the sin of others, which happened to be greater. He goes on to write, as long as he remained in this attitude, he remained in perplexity, unhappy in heart and mind. But the prophet came to the place where he was lifted entirely out of that state to see only the wonderful vision of the Lord in his holy temple with sinful mankind and the universe beneath him. The distinction between the Israelites and the Chaldeans became relatively unimportant when things were seen like that. It was no longer possible to be exalted either as an individual or a nation. When we see things from a spiritual viewpoint, from a biblical viewpoint, when we run all of our circumstances, all the perplexities of life through the grid work of God and his theology, from his viewpoint, then there is an acknowledgement that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and the whole world lieth in the place of the evil one. The holiness of God and the sin of man are the only things that matter. And that's our day-to-day challenge, beloved, is that we see our circumstances, our adversities, the struggles, not only individually, but perhaps as families, as a church, as a nation, as a, as a world community of believers, through the grid work, through the lenses of who and what God is. And that's what Habakkuk is coming to this place. Pray humbly, approach humbly. I fear, I fear, he said. R.A. Torrey, who's written... Great works on prayer that I would commend to you. Uh, tells the story how on one occasion he was speaking in a, in a uh, church, in a venue, in a public venue and on prayer. And a note was given to him during his presentation which read, Dear Mr. Torrey, I am, I am in great perplexity. I have been praying for a long time that something for something that I am confident is according to God's will, but I do not get it. I have been a member of the Presbyterian Church for 30 years. I have tried to be a consistent one all of the time. I have been a superintendent of the Sunday school for 25 years and an elder in the church for 20 years, and yet God does not answer my prayer, and I cannot understand it. Can you please explain it to me, unquote? Tory replied right away as he was speaking. He said, it is perfectly easy to explain it. This man thinks that because he's been been a consistent church member for 30 years, a faithful Sunday school superintendent for 25 years, and an elder in the church for 20 years, that God is under obligation to answer him. 
he is really praying in his own name, and God will not hear our prayers when we approach him that way. We must, if we would have God answer our prayers, give up any thought that we have any claims upon God. If we got what we deserved, every last one of us would spend eternity in hell. But Jesus Christ has great claims on God, and we should go to God in our prayers, not on the ground of any goodness in ourselves, but on the ground of Jesus Christ's claims. And with that, Tory finished his presentation. At the close of the meeting, it's reported, the man came up to him and said, you have hit the nail square on the head. I did think that because I'd been a consistent church member for 30 years, a Sunday school superintendent for 25 years, and an elder in my church for 20 years, that God was under obligation to answer my prayers. I see my mistake. You know, so long as we see and approach God feeling that we are owed something because we are better or more faithful than someone else, we are making that mistake too. It is only when we abandon all thoughts of being better that we begin to approach God with a genuine and proper humility. Approach humbly. The second thing we think is we learn here from Habakkuk is that he approached worshipfully, adoringly. Lord, I have heard the report about you and I fear or I am in, awe, in a position of awesomeness and in awe of who and what you are to worship our Savior. Thirdly, we need to approach God in prayer with petitions in accord with God's desires. That's why we say, in your will, Lord. Or when we say, amen, in Jesus' name, amen, we mean Jesus could pray this prayer. That always strikes me in my own prayer life is that, am I really praying the same kind of prayer that Jesus would pray? You know, I find uh, much of our prayers are focused on things that we're not sure are in God's will. We need to pray that God's deeds, not our own, would be renewed. And that's what Habakkuk is doing here. He says, O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years, in the midst of the years, make it known. Praise for revival and renewal amongst the people. Praise for renewal of God's work in the midst of bad times. He's praying for a fresh manifestation of God's power among the people of Judah. In his day and age, and in our day and age, we need to pray for a fresh manifestation of God's power in our own lives individually and then in the church together, corporately. And then that final word in verse 2, and Lord, remember mercy or compassion, some of your versions will have. He's praying for a full measure of God's pardon. In wrath, remember mercy. Remember your compassion. He's pleading for that which is central to God's character. God is a compassionate God. He is a merciful God. He has extended grace to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we look at our circumstances and situation, remember, God, give us a manifestation of your power and your pardon. So requesting God's mercy, the prayer comes to an end and this psalm continues in verse 3. He's requested God's mercy, and now he is recalling God's might. This is one of the keys to a vibrant prayer life, to a walk with Christ that will transform your life, and that is to remember the acts of God, what God has done historically, what he has done in your own life, and how he is he's working that out. He recalls God's might, basically, in verses 3 through 15. The bulk of chapter 3 will go quickly through this, but this is precisely the path that Habakkuk took to overcome his fears of the coming invasion. Habakkuk knew, first of all, 
that the, he had a knowledge of God's mighty acts. When you don't know scripture, no biblical history, you don't know God's mighty acts. This is where it's revealed. If you're not paying attention in your own life of God's mighty acts, that's why I pray for us and pray for myself. I have eyes to see his blessings, what he's doing, what he's working out, that I would have a sensitivity to the Holy Spirit working in my life and in your life. Because only then can we recall in our prayers and in talking to other people, recall what he has done. These verses are a little bit hard to understand. Remember, this is in metaphor, poetic formula. He's taking historical events and he's using a poetic form to describe them. It's not how we would do it. This is not the way uh, First and Second Chronicles or First and Second Kings did it. If you want the history lesson, you go back there and you read the accounts of actually how this happened. They deal with God's defense of the Jewish people when he led them out of Egypt through the wilderness and the promised land. And so remember that as we go through this. In verse 3, it says, God comes out from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. Selah is a, a pause, uh, whether it's a musical pause or perhaps just pause and think about it. But Habakkuk is remembering something. Now, this is where you need your Bible <coughs> atlas to find out where these places are. Or perhaps you have a study Bible which is going to tell you where they are. But <coughs> it's... What he's saying here is that this is the God who came from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. His glory covered the heavens and praise filled the earth. These are places geographically. One is a mountain range in southern Israel bordering on Sinai. And Habakkuk is saying that God came out of the Sinai where he met with Moses in order to deliver the people from Egypt. Habakkuk is looking back on that great deliverance. But in to caution you, he's not just simply looking at a history, but he's recognizing that the God of this history is still the active God in his day, and he's still the active God in our day. In verse three, four, uh, 3b through 4, look what it says. His splendor covers the heavens, and the earth is full of his praise. His radiance is like the sunlight. He has rays flashing from his hand, and there is, hiding of, there is a hiding of his power. Uh, his splendor is like the sunrise. This probably is speaking of the Shekinah glory. Remember the cloud by which God uh, manifested his presence with the people out of the Exodus and stood between the people of Israel and the Egyptians in the night of their deliverance and gave them time to cross the Red Sea. And during their desert wandering, this pillar of fire and this cloud that uh, would cover them. Verses 5 through 7, look at verse 5 with me. Before him goes pestilence and plague comes after him. He stood and surveyed the earth. He looked and startled the nations. Yes, the perpetual mountains were shattered. The ancient hills collapsed. His ways are everlasting. I saw the tents of Cushion under distress. The tent curtains of the land of Midian were trembling. He's probably referring back historically to the plagues in Egypt when God uh, put plagues upon the Egyptians. He stood in the earth and looked and made the nations tremble. These talk about the conquest of, the nation, of, of Canaan land uh, when Joshua went into the land. Verses 8 through 10. Look at 8 through 10. Did the Lord rage against the rivers, or was your anger against the rivers, or was your wrath against the sea that you rode on the horses or your chariots of salvation? Your bow was made bare. The rods of chastisement were sworn. Selah. You cleaved the earth with rivers. The mountains you saw, and qu you saw you and quaked. The downpour of water swept by. The deep uttered forth its voice. It lifted up its hands. Uh, 
It refers to the parting probably of the Red Sea and then later of the Jordan River, of God's control over nature. He's recalling that in the midst of all of this, God is in control of all of nature. Verses 11 and 12, sun and moon stood in their places. They went away in the light of your arrows at the radiance of your gleaming spear and indignation you marched through the earth. And probably a reference to the incident related in Joshua 10. The Jewish armies had fallen on the forces of the Amorite kings before the walls of Gibeon and had routed them. And the Amorites fled and the Lord struck down the soldiers with large hailstones. And when Joshua prayed for the sun and the moon to stand still while he and the army pursued and completely destroyed the Amorite armies, the Lord obliged by saying that his prayer, surely the Lord was fighting for Israel that day, Joshua 10, 14. And so we recognize that these were extreme supernatural events in the history of Israel and working on God's behalf. And the faith that we see in the Old Testament and the faith we see in the New Testament in Christianity is not a faith primarily in ideas. Yes, there are ideas and doctrine in Scripture, and it's not primarily, though, a faith in ideas. It's a faith in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, in God himself in the Old Testament. It's essentially a faith in acts, God's mighty acts. He is at work and active in this world. This alone provides a deliverance from fear and uh, provision for inner moral, moral fortitude we need in difficult times. Are you going through very difficult times right now? You need to recall what God's faithfulness has been in the past. Verses 13 through 15, that's where we recall his faithfulness. Look at verse 13 with me. You went forth for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed You struck the head of the house of evil to lay him open from thigh to neck, Selah. You pierced with your own spears the head of his throngs. They stormed in to scatter us. Their exaltation was like those who devour the oppressed in secret. You trampled on the sea with your horse on the surge of many waters. He came to deliver his people. We think back to the Exodus and for God's destruction of the Egyptian army in the Red Sea. And this recounts God's mighty acts in history. But here it adds another dimension in looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. The phrase, your anointed one, refers to the Messiah coming in the line of Israel. The second half of the verse and next probably referred to David's victory over Goliath. The central point is very clear. God's faithfulness to his people and to his anointed one and to his plan throughout all of the ages. When we rest in that, we have perfect rest no matter what the world looks like. God's mighty acts in history, whether it's in biblical history, in church history, in your personal history, when you are able to point out God's faithfulness through that time, you will recognize that he is able to demonstrate and save those who look to him for faith. But he also promised to save his people and he will save them. God, who makes the promises, stands by his promises. He keeps his oath. He doesn't fail in that. I want to remind you of some of the promises the Lord Jesus Christ has given us for living in hard times. In Matthew 6, 25 through 33, Jesus said, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. 
Are you not much more valuable than they? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow. They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. John 14, 1 through 3, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you with me to be that so that you may be where I am also. John 14, 25 through 27. All of this I have spoken while still with you, but the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. And, of course, that great passage at the end of Matthew. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And surely I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. He will never leave us nor forsake us. So Habakkuk has requested God's mercy. He's recalled God's might. In verses 16 through 19, he rejoices in God's majesty. Rejoices in God's majesty. But before he gets there, he has real physical manifestations of fear. Remember, he said, I fear. Look at verse 16. I heard. What did he hear? He heard what God is going to do with the Babylonians to discipline Judah And he says, I heard and my inward parts trembled. At the sound, my lips quivered. Decay entered my bones and in my place, I tremble. Inner trembling, quivering lips, decaying bones, trembling in place. Perhaps you've been in a situation or are right now where you are fearful about something that may or may not happen. You are fearful about something that has happened. And you can identify with Habakkuk in the sense that he has physical manifestations The stress is getting to him. And there are reasons for that fear. In the second part of verse 16, because I must wait quietly for the day of distress for the people to arise who will invade us. He knows that God has said it. It's going to happen. There's no delaying it. There's no avoiding it. The Babylonians are knocking at the door the distress, the adversity. He's waiting for the enemy and waiting for the, for the inevitable, basically, here. In verse 17, he makes this strange declaration. And we do this all the time. You know, we do, suppose I lose my job. Suppose I get sick. Suppose my children don't follow the Lord. Suppose uh, uh, the Wall Street collapses. Suppose... Hillary's elected. Suppose the Donald's elected. You know, it's, we do the what if in life, don't we? And some people live by those supposes or those what ifs. But it is not as good as Habakkuk's pr- procedure. 
Look at verse 17. He's basically saying, suppose the fig tree should not blossom and there be no fruit on the vines. Suppose that the yield of the olive should fail. Suppose that the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls. What if, what if, what if? He's really not living there, but he's making a statement. He says to those suppositions, to those what ifs, he says, come on in. Because he did not fear the supposing or the what ifs because he knew that one greater than all of the what ifs was in the room. The greater one is the Lord, Habakkuk's own personal Savior. He is the one who knew that he would be given the necessary strength even in the most threatening of times. In verses 18 through 19, he rejoices with confidence and trust. Look at verse 18. He's gone through these what ifs, and very, very clearly these are going to happen. In verse 18, yet I will exalt in the Lord. No matter what, I will exalt in the Lord. And look there in verse 18, I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. In Eloah Yissi, the Hebrew reads, the God of my salvation. He goes back to the very fact this is the one who he trusts in. He doesn't trust in the government of Judah. He doesn't trust in the people of Judah. He doesn't trust in the Babylonians, obviously. And he doesn't trust in his own strength and power. G. Campbell Morgan, an expositor of the word from the last generation, wrote about this, and he translated it on his own and to, get the, to get the feeling that Habakkuk was saying here. And he says, he, he interprets it literally in verse 18. He says, uh, it's the, I will jump for joy in the Lord. I will spin around in the God of my salvation. In the midst of deep discouragement, Habakkuk used music to lift himself up, used this poetic device, even to the point where he would say, I am ready to jump for joy in the God of my salvation and spin around because of who God is. How could he say that? How could he say that? Verse 19 is the key. Look at verse 19. The Lord my God is my strength. The Lord my God is my strength. He goes on to do this poetic metaphor here. And he has made my feet like hinds feet or like deer and makes me walk on high places. What does that mean? We see this metaphor to explain what it means to rejoice in the midst of our suffering. Habakkuk likens it to walk to walking sure-footedly on the mountaintops. In ancient times, being on the highest mountain was the safest place to be, and those who inhabited the high grounds could not easily be defeated by their opposition. They would have to fight uphill. They would be spotted very easily, but those on the mountaintops controlled the surrounding area. Habakkuk is showing us that if you walk on the heights, you will gain the perspective and vista that is not gained from valley living. Nothing can ultimately harm you there, even in the midst of much calamity. He uses poetry to convey a very important thing. The fact that because the Lord is our strength, he is the one, not us, who makes our feet like the deer's feet to walk on the mountaintops in the place of victory. We all know that hard times come. That's just part of life. That's part of living. And when calamity, death, sickness, or massive disappointments come, they bring with it an opportunity of pushing you up to the heights spiritually. The warning is is that suffering will either make us or break us. Suffering will either make you fall farther than you've ever fallen before and destroy you both spiritually and emotionally, 
or will put you on the heights, God's heights, heights of character, closeness to God, at such a vantage point, able to see things. I've seen both of those in the family of the church, where people who get so beat up by life circumstances abandon God and abandon his church, abandon his people. And they think that's the solution. But Habakkuk reminds us that it isn't. Then I've seen others who have been totally devastated by their life circumstances, and yet, like Habakkuk, the Lord God is my strength. I have a visual image that I had many years ago, waiting in the lobby as people were coming. And one of the ladies at that time, she's since gone on to be with the Lord, was extremely, extremely crippled. And she came in from that parking lot out there, and she had those, what, six, seven stairs to come up. And she wouldn't let people help her, but she would grasp the handrail hand over hand and pull herself up to be here on Sunday mornings. It is convicting to me personally to let you in a little secret. There's some Sundays I don't want to be here. Yeah. <laughs> My wife says I got to go, though. So, But I think of her, and I think, wow. She was so determined. With her last breath, she wanted to be with God's people. Celebrating and worshiping who God was. The Lord God is my strength, even when our physical frame fails. God calls us to faith in him, no matter the outward appearance of our world. And we can journey from worry to worship, from complexity to peace, no matter what it looks like, because our God is our strength, and he is the one who takes our unknown future, as one writer said, and we commit it to the known God and he can carry it. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your people, for this church family. Thank you for blessing us with one another and for your great grace that's poured out in our lives. We thank you for the prophet Habakkuk. And Lord, I for one am looking forward to meeting him in heaven and uh, getting to know him. And Lord, we thank you that we have a future and a hope because of the Lord Jesus Christ and that we are saved by grace through faith it is not of ourselves that we would not boast. Lord, thank you that you are the almighty God. In Jesus' powerful name I pray, amen.